0: Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile
1: banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE. It's almost too perfect.
0: That is ridiculous. You no, can't it, charge a book you, with being you,
1: too you perfect. You sort of, okay, okay, okay let me, let me. Let so
0: me, the problem with it is that it's, it's too, too good. good. No, no it's, I think I win, James. Welcome to the Booker Prize podcast with me, Joe Hamier.
1: And me, James Walton.
0: And today we're launching an occasional series, which we're calling The Booker versus Bookies. The idea being that we'll go back to a year when there was a firm bookies' favourite to win the prize, but it didn't. So who was right we will be asking, the bookies or the booker judges?
1: We'll come to the two books slugging it out today in a minute, but I suppose we should briefly explain, especially for overseas listeners, the possibly strange idea of betting money on a high-minded literary prize. Uh, Joe, you're apparently a bit of an expert on this subject, so can you fill in a bit of the background?
0: Um, not, not really an expert.
1: <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I'm
0: like never gambled in my life, James. Um, well, you're a
1: keen s- student of Booker history. <laughs>
0: yeah. um, there is uh, a tradition that I think was started uh, by Graham Sharp at William Hill of kind of betting on favourite Booker novels to win. Uh, it's a bit like betting on horses, except like more highbrow. Um, And there's this really interesting interview he gave for The Atlantic, I think around 2013, um, where he says, uh, while he does read all the books, I try not to permit my own opinion of them to influence the opening odds. Um, One year he was convinced that Cloud Atlas by David Mitchell was certainly going to win because it was priced accordingly, but it was beaten. Um, I think it's not uncommon, like people bet on... um, Grammy Award shows, Mercury Prize, the um, Turner Prize for Art. So it's not entirely sort of unaccompanied. It's not a a kind of special case for Booker, but it does uh, hold a lot of sway these days um, for newspapers, for chat on social media to eventually predict the winner. I'm not quite sure how I feel about it personally. I kind of think there's this chance that it might reduce you know, 13 books on a long list to this idea, this gamified idea of only one being special or only one being deservingly spoken about. But then again, I also think to decide a winner, you've got to talk about all of the novels equally. So I can't really make up my mind over whether it's a good thing or a bad thing.
1: No, uh, Julian Barnes famously called the Booker once "posh bingo," didn't he? But then yeah. that was he, he withdrew that when he won, as people tend <laughs> people tend to do. Um, anyway, thanks thanks very much. So so th- here we are with our first ever the Booker versus the bookies, and um, we thought we'd begin with what we decided was the best ever book shortlist, uh, namely 2005, when the winner was John Banville's The Sea at ten to one. Uh, but the firm favourite was Arthur and George by Julian Barnes at five to four. Yeah. Uh, even though, as you'd expect from the official best ever book of shortlist, well, semi-official, there were plenty of other strong contenders as well, namely On Beauty by Zadie Smith, The Accidental by Ali Smith, A Long, Long Way by Sebastian Barry and Never Let Me Go by Kazuo Ishiguro.
0: And there was a pretty strong long list too, including Salman Rushdie's Shalimar the Clown, Rachel Cusk's In the Fold... Marina Luka's best-selling A uh, Short History of Tractors in Ukrainian, Beyond Black by Hilary Mantel, and Saturday by Ian McEwan.
1: So, uh Joe, do you want to take it away with uh, introducing us to Arthur and George by Julian Barnes, the bookie's favourite?
0: Arthur and George is sort of the polar opposite to uh, the winning novel that year, The um, Sea. It revolves around uh, Arthur uh, Conan Doyle and George Adelgy, who are both real historical figures. And the really strange crossover between them. It kind of follows them from boyhood almost to both their graves. Uh, G was falsely imprisoned uh, for ripping horses.
1: Yeah, really weird in, crime, wasn't it? Yeah,
0: really strange. Um, and I think uh, got sentenced to seven years penal servitude. Conan Doyle intervened over what he thought was a miscarriage of justice, uh, and Conan Doyle had him pardoned after three years when George sent him a letter. Um, so George uh, calls in Conan Doyle, who is kind of really flagging at this point in his life and needs something to reinvigorate him. Um, and there's this wonderful scene uh, where he says to George when they finally meet after this entire novel where their lives have kind of been chronicled side by side, I'm going to make a tremendous amount of noise right, because yeah. the British, British establishment doesn't like noise. They want us to go, out the, go in the back door and I'm going to stamp up the stairs and go in the front door. Um, I think really the most incredible thing about this book is um, how much it humanizes the two men. I think it's really interesting because what Barnes essentially has is one really well-known figure in Arthur C- Conan Doyle. You know, there's a mm-hmm. whole uh, cult of people who are, you know, even now, um, decades on, obsessed with um, Doyleana and Sherlock Holmes. Nah. And but then he's got the polar opposite in George Adel- Adelgy, who no one has ever heard of. And in a sense, what he has to do is bring. Conan Doyle down to human proportions and bring Adelgy yeah, up that's to, interesting. Yeah, yeah. to uh, I guess any kind of recognition yeah, yeah. Or, or, or care in the reader's mind. I think he does say absolutely beautifully um, and it is it is actually, I agree with the bookies, my favourite to win for that year.
1: Yeah, I mean, they are, as you say, carefully contrasted, aren't they? Because yeah. Doyle, very imaginative from a boy. Uh, and George, or let's call them Arthur and George, Arthur, <laughs> Arthur very, actually he doesn't reveal, it, 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 it's interesting, he insisted that on the back of the book it should yeah. not say who Arthur was. Uh, but of course, if you'd read anything about, or yeah. heard anything about the book, including podcasts, you'd know it was Arthur Conan Doyle, but actually it's only about, about a fifth of the way through when he starts writing and he comes up with a character called Sherlock Holmes. You think,
0: ah. Yes.
1: Except you don't think, ah, because you know it's Arthur Conan Doyle. You know <laughs> but anyway, uh, but anyway so, um, so Arthur, Arthur very imaginative from an early age. George, Completely unimaginative, isn't he? Because he actually, well, he actually says on page three, I think, George was, had no imagination. And he regards adventure stories as too unlikely to be true, whereas Arthur loves them. And the, 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 this contrast between them goes all, all the way through. And, well, I think we probably should also mention that George is, is well, his, his, his father is Asian, his father's an Indian, although he's also classy. a Vicar. Yeah. And, um, but George refuses to accept that the framing of him has any racial prejudice in, involved in, at all.
0: Yes, which is really unbelievable because George's Parsi, um, his mother is Scottish, his dad is Indian. They um, live in this small village in Great worley and uh, for the first sort of third of the book, they receive torrents and torrents of abuse, of anonymous letters, dead uh, birds being thrown into the vicarage uh, where his father um, works and preaches. George's sort of, um, I think picked on as kind of pushing it really lightly at school. But there's this uh, thing that's a massive giveaway to me, at least by the end of the book, where a boy named Wally Sharp comes up to him and whispers, you're not the right sort on page 12, which becomes a really key phrase. But I think- uh, And
1: again, we don't know that because again, he doesn't reveal that he's Asian for a little while either. There's possibly a clue in his surname, but only just-
0: well, I think there's this really beautiful passage that I find really key to understanding um George. Um and I think it sort of demonstrates what Barnes what Barnes does best in this book. Um, so this is George sort of just after he's um left school and become a solicitor. And it goes, at school, additional stories and explanations of life were put before him. This is what science says. This is what history says. This is what literature says. George became adept at answering examination questions on these subjects, even if they had no real vivacity in his mind. But now he has discovered the law and the world is finally beginning to make sense. Hitherto, invisible connections between people, between things, between ideas and principles are gradually revealing themselves. For instance, he is on the train between Bloxwich and Birchills, looking out of the window at a hedgerow. He sees not what his fellow passengers would see, a few intertwined bushes blown by the wind, home to some nesting birds, but instead a formal boundary between owners of land, a delineation settled by contracts or long usage, something active, something liable to promote either amity or dispute." At the vicarage, he he looks at the maid scrubbing the kitchen table, and instead of a coarse and clumsy girl likely to misplace his books, he sees a contract of employment and a duty of care, a complicated and delicate tying together, backed by centuries of case law, all of it unfamiliar to the parties involved. Um, one of the kind of amazing things in this book, uh, which is... True. I mean, all of this is true. I think there's only one letter that Bonds sort of wrote himself and fictionalised, but everything else is kind of uh, extracted from uh, real archive. George Adelje wrote a book on railway law, um, which is frequently excerpted in this book
1: for the man on the train. Yes, (laughs) it's got a little pamphlet he's terribly proud of, and even later on when he becomes, yeah, because. Doyle does make a noise, yeah, and, um, and then he never gets his pardon. It's all it's all a bit ambiguous towards the end, but but anyway, he, he's, he still becomes famous as a result of Doyle's intervention, which he's slightly uneasy about. But he thinks maybe this is a good chance to reproduce re- reprint my my book on train law, and then he thinks now I'm taking to it. I'm taking advantage of my <laughs> yeah. notoriety. He's, he's so yeah, but, but one of the many heartbreaking things about this book is his faith in the law.
0: But yeah, this is what I was going to say is that there's this point where, but I think it's. For me, that passage is amazing because that point about duty of care through law, I mean, it, you said that he has no imagination. I mean, it says he has no real vivacity in his mind, but he does believe in process and justice. And um, I think when he uh in prison, there's this kind of moment of disbelief in his mind where he goes, um well, the police got it wrong. They didn't realise that I wasn't ripping these horses, but, you know, surely the, the bailiff will get it right and the bailiff's not getting it right. So then I'll go to court and, and surely the jury will see that I'm not guilty and then the jury doesn't. And he goes, okay, that's fine. Um, court of magistrates will and the magistrates no. don't. And then he's like, well, the, what what do I believe in anymore?
1: No, uh, yeah, that's uh, absolutely.
0: Which is a, another kind of key strand in this book because um, it, It really does concern uh, a loss of faith, like religious faith for both Arthur and George um, and goes quite deeply into uh, Conan Doyle's sort of ventures into what he likes to call spiritism. which is essentially kind of, I guess, what would you call it now? Spirit,
1: spirit, spiritualism. I think spiritualism. Spiritualism. Um,
0: uh, mediums talking to the dead, predicting yeah, no, the, I, 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 the, I, I, the other, side, I think one the other of the, side of the veil. I
1: think one of the many interesting things about the book is that, um, you know, we t- it's, it's often because he dedicated the last 20 odd years of his life to spiritualism, writing about it, yeah. campaigning for it. The book ends, I don't think this is a spoiler, with a massive seance after he's died. Yeah. Doyle wanted a massive seance in the Royal, in the Royal Albert Hall. Uh, which was attended by thousands of people. And the medium says, you know, he's with us and everybody cheers. And I think what we've tended to tend to think now is, isn't it amazing that this bloke who invented Sherlock Holmes, the absolute sort of epitome of science, of evidence-based science, should also fall for for spiritualism. But in fact, what the book makes clear is how scientific um, that was for a while. I I read somewhere else that... um, you know, Marconi invented the radio and Alan, Alexander Graham Bell invented the telephone and John Logebird invented the television, all with an eye to contacting the dead. This was this was going to be the next stage of science. Because I think you can't I forget what an astonishing thing it was to be able to speak to someone who wasn't there for the first time, yeah. which those things allowed, or to hear someone who wasn't there. And that had never happened before in all of human history. And I think they thought, well, you know, the next stage of that is we talk to people who are dead. yeah, and And it was more of a scientific project than we... Then we think Barnes, again, in his unforced way, brings all, all that out as well.
0: Yeah, he really does. And I think it's really nicely complemented by the fact that um, Conan Doyle at the time um, spent 13 really yo- long years waiting. Well, not waiting, but his wife had consumption. Um, at first, she was given three months and then three months stretched into 13 years. And he was constantly kind of waiting for that moment when she would die. Louisa, who he nicknames Tui. Yeah. Um takes a mistress at that point and insists that it's fine because they're not having sex, but still feels sort of racked with guilt and purposeless. And I think the there's this really lovely slide that Barnes achieves from um, Arthur being the sort of man who wants to have a family and provide for it and be a hero. And then all of a sudden having his dreams kind of shattered by Um, To his diagnosis, the slide from that diagnosis into wanting so badly to contact the dead is just really beautiful.
1: Yeah. No, there's a. uh, uh, He's he's brilliant at capturing that sort of dilemma. So he's got this Gene Leckie who he he obviously falls in love with, but because they're not having sex and he's looking after his wife, but he's not allowed to have sex with his wife either on medical grounds. (laughs) And, um, but he's extremely honourable. Yeah. Uh, about it all, and then when his wife dies, he thinks that oh, he suddenly—that's he, when he's completely paralysed because he thinks to marry Jean immediately would be to admit that she's been my true love all these years, yeah. which would upset his children, and he falls into this kind of complete sort of spiral of inertia, and and it's then that George's letter turns up and that yeah. gives him this new lease of life.
0: Um, I think, really, for me, I, this is a book about two men. Uh, obviously, and they're fascinating and it's engrossing, and I, I loved it. Um, but I think to me, what's most amazing about this book is that sometimes I can't believe that Julian Barnes isn't a woman. The way that he writes um Jean Lecky and um and uh Tui or Louisa is unbelievable. There's this point where um uh George's uh, appeal, although I don't know whether it would have officially been called an appeal at that point, um, kind of goes right, but goes wrong. I won't spoil it for readers who want to read the book. Um, And Conan Doyle gets very angry whilst he's reading a report in a newspaper. And Jean goes, Jean kind of thinks to herself, I've never seen this side of him before. I've never seen this temper. And then she goes, I would hate for it to be turned on me, to herself inwardly. And I've just, I've known so many women who... Have said exactly the same thing <laughs> to each other of like, and um, it's just the most striking line to me in that book, and to me completely illustrates how beautifully Bonds achieves his character work.
1: You so you think the bookies were right, dear?
0: I think they were totally right. Yeah,
1: but but shall I do the Banville first? Do you yeah. Think? So let's get it. Let's get into him. So John John Banville's the Sea, far less well known book. often George actually became a. ITV drama series star, starring Martin Clunes, who was the hottest thing in television yeah, at the moment. I was
0: going to watch it, but then I didn't want the book spoiled for me. Yeah,
1: it, 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 it's sort of interesting. I watched a bit of it, but um, but, but that you know. So Arthur and George, I think, is a quite a famous book, uh, and the sea, possibly now less so, but but I think it is brilliant. Um, just give you a bit about Banville that he was um, born in Wexford, 1945. Didn't go to uni, um, which he sometimes describes as a great mistake and sometimes uh, not. He became a a clerk for Aer Lingus, uh, then joined the. became a sub-editor at the Irish Times and eventually ended up the uh, literary editor of the Irish Times. Um, He was first shortlisted for the Booker Prize with the Book of Evidence in 1989, which has got a deeply unreliable narrator who uh, lives up to the Nabokov thing that you can count on a murderer for a fancy prose style. (laughs) Sounds uh, familiar. (laughs) Yes, and it it does all his books, in fact. (laughs) He was longlisted in 2002 for Shroud, which has got a deeply unreliable narrator, not a murderer, but does have a... Fancy Pro Stylus 2. Uh, my job of summarising the book is, I think, a bit easier than Joe's.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Which is basically a bloke sits by the sea and feels sorry for himself. Uh, or oh, <laughs> That genuinely
0: is just It's, it, not, right? it's <laughs> not, it's not. This is a
1: cracking book. I'm going to be a bit more precise and a lot fairer. A bloke called Max Morden. His wife Anna has recently died and he finds himself drawn to the village where he used to go on holiday with his parents every summer. Which he calls Less. That, that is a little joke because the na- neighbouring town is Ballymore uh, and in particular he remembers one summer when he was about 11 one of the many things he's never quite sure about is how old he was but anyway uh, and he met this rather glamorous family called the Graces yeah. uh, posher than his own because they're staying in this uh, cottage called the Cedars uh, and he's staying in a little chalet in a field of little chalets uh, with his family and uh, sure enough it's the Caesars Cedars which is now a boarding house where he comes back to stay after his wife's died uh, and he returns to Less. And in that long-lost summer, he first fancied the mother, Connie, and uh, during, the, during the, the peak of his um, uh, obsession with her, there's a, a, a very extended upskirting scene, I'm sorry to say, uh, on the beach. And then he transfers his um, affections to uh, the daughter, Chloe. As you do. <laughs> who's about 11 as well, I think. And throughout the book, it's hinted that the summer ended in some kind of tragedy. And uh, we do find out in the end what that was. But most of the book consists of Max reflecting on that long-lost summer and the death of his wife in endlessly beautiful sentences that uh, possibly tend to the fastidious and sometimes even to the plain old showing off. Um, but this is where I think the book is. So I think people who don't like the book think it's just a lot of fancy sentences. But I would suggest um, uh, that while the sentences remain beautiful, it becomes clear just how much pain maxes is in, and that in a way the perfect surface of his prose is a, an attempt and ultimately a failed one to keep all the bad stuff at bay. There's one of the more intriguing minor characters is Colonel Blunden, who's in the Cedars uh, when Max is uh, staying there as, a, as an older man. Um, and Max says of him, he has, quote, the glazed flawlessness of an actor who has been playing the same part for too long. And I think that's a great phrase, the glazed flawlessness. But I think the same applies to Max and his fancy style too. It does have a glazed flawlessness, including the flawlessness bit. But also, there's something quite funny about the way he keeps pointing to the colonel as, as this, you know, sad old loser staying on his own in a boarding house, when obviously he's in exactly the same situation. Um, and it's also interspersed with glimpses of the things that Max is trying so hard not to glimpse. I think. So um, there's one, you know, one bit where he talks about the day his his father left left home. Uh, he said, you know, he's talking about the holidays. We came here for many years until my father ran off to England, as fathers sometimes did in those days, and do still, for that matter. But it clearly is a trauma for him and destroyed his mother. So again, we get glimpses that his mother seems to have ended her days as more or less a drunken bag lady who, who Max didn't invite to his wedding. In fact, we dis- discovered so, one, I think, quite funny point that his name isn't even really Max because he goes to visit his drunken old mother at one point, doesn't he? And she, she says, with his, with his posh, soon-to-be wife, yeah. and his, his mother says, why is she calling you Max? Yeah. So he's obviously picked up some posh name along the way. We never hear his name in the boyhood scenes at all. And though it seems clear that he and Anna, his wife, did love each other, there's plenty of regrets about the marriage too. And, you know, the famous thing that guilt prolongs grief and intensifies grief. And, in fact, even the whole Grace's business might be an attempt to look away from what's really hurting him. As he says, everything for me is something else. I think it's, I think it's obviously a clever book and beautifully written and all that and lots of great sentences, but, but also I think powerfully affecting. Were you powerfully affected, though, is the big question. <laughs>
0: I wasn't <laughs> okay. why why the hell not but I kind of have the um opposite view in the sense that I think um i I don't think the sentences are overwrought. I find them really beautiful. I think that the whole um, sentence structure in the first half um weaving between memories to me is almost like a Virginia Woolf novel. It was just as good. I felt really envious reading this book um, because I want to be able to write sentences like that. Um, But I just couldn't, I couldn't bring myself to care about Max in any way possible. I mean, (laughs) and I, I still can't tell why, but yes, he's meant to be contemptible. He's meant to be ridiculous and he's meant to be pathetic and he's meant to be sort of a fraud. Um, and you're meant to feel sorry for him, but I just don't. I really don't. I couldn't find anything to kind of catch hold of in this book to make me care about him at all. And in fact, I was far more interesting in hearing about his wife, Anna or um, Miss Vivassa.
1: Yeah, who owns the uh, the, the yeah.
0: landlady of the home he's staying and she goes around in all these fabulous clothes and cooks them really bad breakfasts and lunches. And I, the intrigue of that, of what had happened to her in in the time between, you know, why why was she Rose then and now Miss vavasour was so much more interesting to me than anything that Max was saying. Um, even though he's the one delivering these scenes. I think occasionally I felt this kind of, jolt of him sort of ch- turning away from his memories, especially in the early bits. So there's this point um, where he's uh, recalling the fact that um, he had to go to a village doctor as a child because he twisted his wrist or something. And um, and the doctor kind of touches him up in this quite extended scene. And then all of a sudden um, he kind of flips uh Over to saying, in truth, I have only fond memories of that day. I can still recall the aroma of after lunch coffee on the doctor's breath and the fishy swivel of his housekeeper's eye. I, I just kind of, it it does bring you up short. But when he does that, it, I don't know, it doesn't make me feel pity. I'm just like, I don't know why I should care. He ever does that. I
1: mean, that's clearly another example of him just, just using lovely language to disguise pain.
0: And by the time he does sort of break down. I think he's kind of been so, it's almost like he's covered up so much in that first part that by the second part, I've sort of lost interest in a breakdown. I just, I don't know. Maybe it's the case that because this is so beautifully written, it's almost like there wasn't enough. I mean, it's very short. There wasn't enough room left over to work on character properly. Um, See, I
1: think that's where we do disagree. Because I think in in a way, it's essentially a character study.
0: It is, but it's a um, failed off. one <laughs> to me.
1: Okay, then this is this is fighting talk, Joe. So let, <laughs> let me let me try and put the. Uh, I mean, I'm not going to pretend I don't like Arthur and George or, yeah. at all because it's a terrific book.
0: Go on, have at it. What? But, tell me what's wrong with uh, Arthur okay. and George.
1: It's by far Bond's longest book. Yeah, uh, and does it earn its length? I suppose is my main question about it. That's there's very. Quite, fair. There's quite a lot of. Um, um, you know you do feel like that thing that authors have which is basically I've researched this so it's bloody well going in <laughs>
0: Which uh, bits would you cut?
1: All the bits about the letters really get all, all a bit confusing and the, the actual case itself Wait
0: the, the letters there are a lot of letters
1: in there, There's a lot of letters the,
0: so. the letters that are being sent to the Adolgy family or the letters at the end
1: The letters are being sent to the G family so it is quite confusing I think one of the themes of that book is a yearning for certainty they both are, Doyle wants to know exactly what happened and of course we want to know exactly what happened and Barnes wants to know exactly what happened and we we never quite find it out there are there are there, there are possibilities it's but, um, but, but
0: Anson uh, says this at some point he say, he says um that's a question for dete- from Detective Fiction. It's what your readers beg and what you so winningly provide. He's talking to Conan Doyle here. Tell us what really happened, which is actually a question that you've asked many times on this podcast. Yeah, you? no, no. I
1: mean, the, the question of what really happened is what we want to know. Anson, we, we should probably say, is the sort of chief constable of Staffordshire, yes. a fantastically sort of racist, anti-George <laughs> figure who Doyle goes to see and uh, ends up, you know, d- despite what well, begins despising, but then becomes completely obsessed with. I mean, there's almost too many bits that I'd Cut, I think, but th- th- there's a there's a guy called I think it's Doctor Butter who is the he provides the most damning evidence, which is that seem to be some horse hairs on George's jacket, and he doesn't seem to be he doesn't know how they got there, and he he also says this Doctor Butter seems fairly honourable; he doesn't seem one of the sort of racist framers. Um, you know, there was blood on, on on George's jacket too, and he admits that could be from anything. That could be from roast mammalian beef or something. <laughs> yeah, mammalian blood. That's right, yeah. So it could be from roast beef or something. But he says the horse, the, the hairs on it seem to be horses. So Doyle goes to see him, yeah. and there's about a 10 page discussion where he sticks to his story. And there's bits where Doyle re-investigates things and nothing changes. But anyway, how do you respond to that, first of all? <laughs> before I, <laughs> before I turn to my, uh, my next so charge.
0: Um. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, uh, I respond to that by saying, I agree with you, but not on that point, particularly. So I think, y- y- yeah, but I wouldn't cut this book by more than something like 100 pages, to be honest with you, because part of what it is, I mean, it's historical fiction, but it's trying to recreate this idea of a, you know, chunky Victorian book that you invest time into and care into. Um, the, the bits that I got impatient over were the sort of Conan Doyle combing over um Adel G's case and um everything remaining essentially the same and i I thought almost this might be crass to say but almost Barnes trying to do a little Sherlock Holmes turn towards the end of the book yeah um that I kind of felt um I mean I get it it's it's literally a a book partially about Arthur Conan Doyle, but I thought I was so much more intrigued when it was a Julian Barnes novel rather than a a kind of imitation of a Sherlock Holmes story. Um, So I would have cut down all the investigating that happens. Although I think the scene between Conan Doyle and Anson, uh, sort of after dinner when he visits Anson by the- This is the rascally chief
1: constable guy, yeah.
0: Yeah, is thrilling. Because it it, you yeah, start to see Conan Doyle getting wrong-footed um, after this entire process of building up a case in his mind and in his files and to G as well, um, and I, I kind of felt like I was at a football match reading this scene. I was a bit like, oh, he's, you know, Anson's really got him yeah, now. No, I'm no, like, no. Oh God, I didn't expect Arthur to falter <laughs> at this no, point. No, that's fantastic, isn't um, it? No, no, no. But and you kind of needed that whole preamble of of. Um, Arthur becoming so certain in his analysis and all the traipsing he does around um, Great Whirly to to gather evidence and talk to George's parents and all this stuff. The other
1: thing, so I don't think it earns its length, is my first objection. And my second is that it's almost too perfect.
0: That is ridiculous. You no, can't it, charge a book you, you, with being no, too you, perfect. You sort of,
1: okay, okay, let me, let me. Tr- let so me,
0: the problem with it is that it's, it's too, too good. No, no it's, I too, think it's I too, win, too, it's too, it's
1: too, it's no, it's too controlled. it never, it never. Well, okay, let me try this. Barnes. <laughs> uh, 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 so, said,
0: Banville should win because he's imperfectly perfect. Yeah, because it's
1: slight. There's something slightly more to it than meets the eye. Mm. There's the. It's. it's so, so, okay, try this. Barnes has said on, on uh, a few occasions, I think, that his three favourite English novels of the 19th century, obviously his favourite French one is Madame Bovary, yes. but, but, but his favourite English ones are Persuasion by Jane Austen, Middlemarch by George Eliot, and Jane Eyre by Charlotte Bronte, on the grounds that they're all perfect. And so, and the inter- one interviewer said to him, "What about Dickens?" And he says, jokingly, "Oh, yes, Dickens is pretty good too, but just not perfect. They, those books are not written through. There's too much w- wildness to them." And I, I just think a bit of wildness in Arthur and George, but it just, yeah, that 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 that's, that's what I mean. That that's what I mean by too perfect. That it's too, it's almost too controlled. Every effect, everything. Whereas I think um, the sea is slightly more out of control in a way yeah, but as I say there's just sort of more to it than meets the eye there's some there's some discussion that um, one of the things that for reason books win the Booker Prize is because the way the system works is you read each book three times yeah. and in fact it's the books that some books deserve you know re- reward being read three times more than others in a way and I, I, it was when I was going through the sea again I was sort of along your lines to start with and then I read it again and I thought this is absolutely there is, there is a lot going on here that I hadn't noticed the first time. Whereas Arthur and George, I think you you get it.
0: I don't know. I don't know if I can believe in that as a compelling argument because I just think, well, we had a really interesting conversation yesterday with um, Fiametta Rocco, who's the administrator of the International Prize. Um, and she was saying that the system of sort of reading three times might be a death knell to books which are quite perfect on first read so that you kind of glaze over them the second and third time because you've gotten everything you can out of them. And maybe, you know, these are the books that you return to after five or 10 years to revisit as a pleasure rather than kind of read really quickly in the span of a few months over and over again. Um, And perhaps Arthur and George is one of those. And kind of all the things that you've charged it with to me were amazing sources of comfort. So yeah, it was really long, but like I felt carried through all of it. I cared so much about these two boys. We we literally meet them when they are boys at school. Um and and it's not like either of them are perfect. I don't think there's any other circumstance in which I'd care about a solicitor obsessed with railways and a self-important to be honest, like womanizer, if we want to call a spade a spade with them um, Conan Doyle.
1: Um, well, womanizer is harsh for a bloke who uh, looks after his, his consumptive wife while uh, getting some female companionship that he okay, doesn't doesn't enough. turn into sex. Fair enough,
0: misogynist <laughs> because he is. I can't imagine like a novel like if you if you told me like about these two men. Um, it, just like out of context randomly like here is a book about these two guys I'd be like well that doesn't really sound that interesting I don't care that these these aren't people I would particularly take much interest or care over um but I I felt so held by this book and and so um I felt I was in the hands of someone who truly understands how to write a novel That's absolutely for sure I used to work as a bookseller at waterstones and people would come up to me and they'd say like the most stupid things but they would say things like i need a really good book you know like a real book like a, a book that i can really read which sounds vague but now i know what they mean after arthur and george i'm like oh you want arthur and george you want a perfect novel and i can't view that as a bad thing because i kind of when i got it in the post and it was over 500 pages long i groaned i thought oh god this is going to be a slog to get through And then by page about 300, I was like, it's too short. I want it to last longer. This is so much fun. I felt like I was a kid attempting to do Austin or Elliot again, sort of amazed at how brilliant storytelling can be. I don't know. I just think that's that's something so uh, much more special than the sea.
1: In no way am I champion of Banville, am I going (laughs) to, as I say, as a... I'll keep saying, am I going to pretend that Arthur and George is anything other than a really great book?
0: I think there's this really um, sweet passage where uh, in response to G's the English Court of Appeals was set yeah, up. And there's this really sweet point where George is thinking like, oh, you know what? I'll be a footnote in history. It'll be great. They'll talk about me as a solicitor who wrote that famous book on railway law. <laughs> <laughs> and, was, yeah. but- <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, after all of that, no, the uh, man still just wants to tell people their fundamental human rights when they're on a train.
1: That's <laughs> right. Yeah. The man on the train. They, they, no, no, that's fantastic. And, and, and Barnes really likes both of these people, doesn't he? I mean, yeah. this is a much, if you had to say, which is a nicer book, you'd be in no doubt at all. It, Barnes really likes George and, and gives him his due, as you say.
0: I think it's interesting because...
1: Because now he's more than the footnotes in history. Now he's th- the character in a book, a shortlisted novel.
0: Yeah, but that's sort of interesting in and of itself because whilst the, you know, I think Barnes did read um, Railway Law for the Man on the Train and he did read as many of the... He said it was
1: very charming and quite funny and he really yes. liked it. I mean, he really does like George, doesn't he? And he really likes Arthur.
0: But he does, I think, uh, say that George, George, he had to invent a lot more than <clears throat> Arthur. And I I just think it's... Such an exquisite act of care that you're witnessing when you read this book of of him trying to reconstruct this man from so little material, you know, trying to read between the lines of what he finds important in his <laughs> book about railway law, trying to find out his sense of humor according to the case studies that he's yeah. chosen for it. Um,
1: and even book, we're probably overstating, it's a pamphlet, isn't it, really? But he, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. In a way, these these books are quite both of these books are in a way quite old school, aren't they?
0: Yeah, they are. and that's really interesting because if you take the two thousand and five long list as a whole, it's full of um it's full of big names. But I think weirdly enough, the two big names we have here i I would consider Barnes a kind of He's approaching veteran status now, in Mm -hmm. my mind. You know, I was saying, I went to this talk he did at South Bank where he looked over his writing career, starting from Metroland and leading up to um, Elizabeth Finch.
1: Oh, I'd love to have seen that. Oh, did you tell me me he thought Arthur and George should have won the Booker?
0: Yeah, he seemed really happy. He was in conversation with Claire Armistead and she said... um, I really thought that Arthur and George should have been your winning book and novel. And he went, I'm so glad (laughs) that you think that. I'm so happy to hear you say that. Um, And apparently his wife, Pat, at the time, um, uh, she she read the long list and panel of judges in the newspaper when it got announced. She kind of underlined all of it in the newspaper and put the newspaper next to him and she went you haven't got a chance <laughs> which is <laughs> great <laughs> like I, I mean, just it, think it what a, t- a solid marriage <laughs> mine would survive that I would divorce the
1: next I mean, day a, it is a tough list because we haven't really mentioned Ishiguro and it's great Zadie Switz and,
0: and Salman Rushdie's on there but anyway um, what's really interesting about it is that so Barnes is sort of a veteran Banville to be really honest I, I it sounds like I'm waging a campaign on him I'm really not but I, I can't think of a of a Banville novel recently, I can't think of seeing Banville on the literary circuit. By contrast, other names on that um, long list seem to me to have become much more relevant to our contemporary kind of literary landscape than either Barnes or Banville, sorry to them both, like Rachel Cusk, like Zadie Smith, like Ali Smith. Rushdie, perhaps for more unfortunate reasons, Ishiguro who's now a Nobel winner.
1: I, I think we, we should we should go back. Have we changed each other's minds? Do you do you, are you still with the bookies that Arthur and George should have won?
0: I think I've kind of come to why um, the Manville doesn't resonate with me. I, I was asking myself why for this for the entirety of this book, and I just never got a satisfactory answer as to why.
1: Why? What? Why?
0: Why? Why would he be doing this? What you know now, especially you've taken yourself to the sea to think about all of this. What? Why is this facade so important to you, even as it's slipping? Why are you still trying to keep it up? Why are you thinking about all of these things? You know, it. It's not enough for this book to tell me that you know the past is a foreign country and memory is a terrible place to live. So
1: it sounds if we haven't changed each other's mind. I mean, I, I would add the slightly. Weird and confusing to myself, Ryder, that if someone said to me, which of these books should I read, I would probably say Arthur enjoyed.
0: I think for me, the, the weirdest thing about this entire process has been that if you, if I hadn't read these books and you just described them to me, I would have said The Banville is my book. Yeah, That is instinctively so much more something that I would, I would go for in practice. <laughs> um, I don't know. but it just disappointed me a bit.
1: Okay, we're just <laughs> going to have to do it there. So, as far as off our first ever uh, booker versus the bookies, a, a series we'll be returning to because there's been plenty of times where uh, the hot favourite has been beaten by something else. And uh, in fact, if you've got any suggestions for years where we might want to do that, please do let us know. But for for, for now, it was score one to the booker and score one to the bookies from me and Joe. <laughs>
0: This is very much Barnes's in England. No one ever does anything wrong. Yeah. Both sides are right. That's Both right. We can, we can pretend <laughs>
1: it will never happen.
0: That's it for this week.
1: You can find out more about the sea and Arthur and George at the and remember to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and Substack at the Booker Prizes.
0: If we've persuaded you to give either of the books a go, do let us know what you think.
1: Also, we've recently launched a Booker Prize book club on Facebook. So uh, head to facebook.com slash the Booker Prizes to find out more about that. And until next time, goodbye. Bye. The Booker Prize podcast is hosted by Joe Hamia and me, James Walton. It's produced and edited by Kevin Miolo. And the executive producer is John Davenport. It's a Daddy's Super Yacht production for the Booker Prizes.